Welcome to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Spirituality Program Director, and today we have the privilege of talking to Professor Eric Sims and his wife, Jill. We're going to be talking about their life, their marriage, and some of the special challenges that they have faced as a family. So welcome, Jill and Eric, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe if we could just um, talk to each of you, maybe Jill, we'll start with you. Tell me a little bit about your background and where you're from and and before you met Eric. Uh, My family is is settled in Indianapolis. We've been there for 20, 25 years. I um, am one of four children. And kind of especially when I have a sister who has has a rare uh, genetic disease as well. And so that was kind of in the background of our family growing up with a sister who had uh, special needs. She's now a uh, you know married with children as a pediatrician, which is pretty cool. But she continues to have medical problems, which are, affects her whole family. Um, and I actually had um, I have a set of cousins I'm very close to that also have a rare genetic disease. So it kind of gave me some insight into my current life. I went to Notre Dame for undergrad, and um, I got a pre medical degree. Went to University of Michigan for medical school, and there met my husband Eric while he was in grad school for economics. And then we moved to South Bend for me to start my residency program here at one of the local hospitals and while Eric got um, his job in the economics department. So we've been living in South Bend now for 10 years. We've been married, we'll have been married for 11. We yeah, have been really enjoying living here. Great. Okay, Eric, how about you? Tell us about yourself. Sure. I'm originally from Houston, Texas. I'm one of three children. My entire family still lives back in Houston, and so I'm the one that got away. I grew up a very big Notre Dame football fan, even a fanatic you might describe it as. (laughs) I distinctly remember the 1993 season, the heartbreak following the Florida State loss. (laughs) Ended up going to Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas for my undergraduate degree, majored in economics decided I kind of liked the thought of being a college professor without fully knowing what I was getting into, applied to graduate school. The best graduate program I got into was the University of Michigan of all places, and I moved up there in 2003 to pursue my PhD. It was a very good experience for me, didn't much care for the football team, um, (laughs) but had a good experience with my advisors and fellow students and had the great fortune of meeting my wife, Jill, while she was a second-year medical student and I was still working on my PhD. Finished my PhD and went on the academic job market in 2008 and 2009, and we were blessed with the opportunity that the economics department here at Notre Dame was in a very large growth phase. We're looking to hire, and I was very attracted to the university as a whole, and in particular to its Catholic mission as a way that I could do my daily work in such a way that I would find more fulfillment than I might at other universities and get to interact with undergraduates and share some of my life with them. And so, as Jill mentioned, we've now been here 10 years, now an associate professor in the economics department, engaged in a number of different activities on campus. I love my job. I love getting up in the morning and coming to work and interacting with my colleagues and our wonderful students. And it's been a great place for us to begin our family and to live out our faith. Great. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you about your time dating and meeting and, you know, how did that progress to the point of maybe we should make a go of this thing and and get married? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, I quickly found out that in Ann Arbor, nerding was the enemy. (laughs) And so um, Eric and I met at a coffee shop because I was, I 
did you have a Nerdium t-shirt on? I did. He had a Nerdium t-shirt on. And I and I said, oh, my gosh, do, do you like Notre Dame? Because that was a rarity in Ann Arbor. Sure, sure. And so, sure enough, he did. And that kind of began our friendship. And I saw it as an avenue to tickets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for both of us, um, it was refreshing to meet somebody that we were in. Since we were in different departments, we didn't have the norm, the stresses that come with and the expectations that come with a program. So we, I think we were at the point where we, we, we were needing somebody outside of our programs to kind of normalize your life because sure. graduate school, medical school can be extremely intense. So I think our friendship grew from there. And then actually Kath, or Eric was becoming Catholic at the time, and that was one of my requirements. I needed them to be tall and Catholic and smart. <laughs> so he had all those things. So I actually became your sponsor. Um, so I kind of met you in the beginning of, of your, like, that conversion year. And then I think one of the things that I that drew me to Eric the most is that we, I think all of our values and belief systems, they were, they aligned. Sure. And so we could just talk. And I'm, I'm a big talker, so I felt like I could, we could just talk and talk and talk, and we never ran out of things to talk about, mm-hmm. both of us. And so uh, I think that that was kind of what did it for me. Mm-hmm. Um and we dated for about a year, got engaged, got married the year before Jill finished medical school, and I went on the job market and finished my Ph.D. And it was a stressful time dealing mm-hmm. with joint location issues. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the medical residency match is mm-hmm. not necessarily a, a simple process. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were lucky in many respects that Jill was interested in Family Medicine, which we had two residencies here in South Bend, and I was interested in Notre Dame, and Notre Dame was hiring in my particular field. And so things just kind of broke the right way, and we ended up here. Mm -hmm. I want to maybe explore that decision to join the Catholic Church, that sometimes you hear stories of couples, Mm -hmm. well, once they started dating... And it may have been a requirement, you know, one way or the other, or a requirement of the family, or, or, or at least a hope or aspiration. But Eric, you had already started looking mm-hmm. into that mm-hmm. even before you met Jill. Mm-hmm. What what prompted some of that for you, if you remember? You know, that's a good question. You know, I think a search and a longing for meaning, life, and, you know, a commitment to an institution that has persisted throughout the millennia and that has survived in spite of the very human failings of many of its leaders. Mm -hmm. And the innate feeling that I am loved, we are loved, and we're here for a reason and meant to love others. And I found through a long process, beginning many, many years before that, that I was attracted to the truth and beauty, the liturgy, the sense of community and the global nature of the Catholic Church. And you had told me, too, you said that when you walked into a Catholic church, it felt sacred. Like, it mm-hmm. felt different. You were not in the world. You were mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. And I did actually, I know that a lot of spouses can play a role in the other spouse's conversion. Sure. But I actually liked that Eric had already started that. Right. That it, maybe that it was your own idea, your own calling, mm-hmm. that... It seemed more, for me, it seemed very real. Like, mm-hmm. he's chosen this outside of any relationship, like it's between him and God. So I actually really, I liked that it had already started. And I guess when I said maybe it was a hope or aspiration to marry someone who was Catholic, I just think that in my family, my you know, my immediate family, in my childhood, 
the the traditions were so strong. The sure. Catholic Church was kind of the center of a lot of things that we did. Yeah. So I just envision my own family going forward that I would want to do it with my spouse in the Catholic Church. I would want to raise our children together in the Catholic Church and not have to do that alone or not explain why. Why doesn't Dad go to church? Why, why has Dad got his first communion? Things like that. So that was kind of the basis behind. So, yeah, when you said hope, aspiration, I think that that was a good label for that that feeling. But, yeah, you had already started that. And I think, though, I helped affirm that for you, for Eric, because I think you were a little cautious in actually even telling me that you were converting. <laughs> I mean, and I don't know maybe why, maybe because mm-hmm. maybe you're worried that I wouldn't like that, that you hadn't been Catholic your whole life. But uh-huh. I actually, I found it to be very real. Right. That right. you're making, like, this an adult decision. So what you do as a child, you know, growing up in a Catholic, you, you eventually have to do. Sure. I feel like I did that as an adult as well, but not as formal. Yeah, it can be a little bit different for those of us who would be called cradle Catholics mm-hmm. that in some ways that decision was made for us, and mm-hmm. then we later affirm that decision yeah. through our own life. But for those who come to the Catholic Church later in life, there is an aspect of it being inspirational even mm-hmm. to those of us who are cradle Catholics because it's this free decision mm-hmm. made later, as, as Eric said, due to the beauty and the truth of, of the church. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Mm-hmm. So you both have some pretty significant careers. <laughs> um, how has that balance worked out in your marriage, especially in those early years? Obviously, the stress of academia and and pursuit of tenure in academia, couple that with residency and the pursuit of medicine. That seems like a pretty intense environment. It does, although, Eric, <laughs> you've always said that absence makes the heart grow fonder. We, we, I think that we, you liked about me, I'm speaking for you, but I think you liked about me that I had something that I was passionate about, that I enjoyed doing, you know, I was goal-oriented, and I think you liked that I just had this, I don't know, this hobby in medicine was mm-hmm. my job. And in the beginning, I think because I guess we were both understanding of our schedules, and it was probably easier, don't you think, that we both had thicker, full schedules because then there weren't as many expectations for, well, where have you been? You're not spending time with me. This We both had these long schedules. Right. And we also didn't have children mm-hmm. for the first two years of my residency, which uh-huh. I think actually really helped because we weren't home very much. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and then uh, when we were home, we did spend a lot of time together. You would come to the hospital when I had long shifts to give, bring me dinner or just to see me or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, that was – it actually was okay just because we were younger <laughs> and we didn't have children and we also had supportive families. Sure. I think yeah. some of the things that caused more arguments were like some of the, just the household chores. <laughs> and I remember saying – I work, too. <laughs> so we're splitting this 50-50. We'll do our laundry together. Right. <laughs> we're both empty dishwasher. Yeah, we're great. both going to cook. I think some of those things were probably, which seemed very minor at this point, given our life since then. <laughs> sure. But, but you know, typical kind of the roommate issues that I think people yes. run into in, in any marriage. And yes. how do you divvy up those responsibilities, whether both people are working, you know, tremendously full jobs or one person is staying at home. I mean, those are kind of the conversations that I think every married couple has. Yes. Yeah. As you're trying, especially you're trying to figure out how you're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it, there's a sense in which looking back on it, it seems more daunting than it did at the time. It was just what we did. And in some respects, 
life's a heck of a lot more complicated now. It is, um, actually. I found, you know, you talk about the stresses of getting tenure, and it is stressful, and I was very fortunate to uh, to be tenured uh, here at, at a great university. Sure. You think that life is going to be a vacation after that, and it actually just gets harder. Right, right. <laughs> the, long, the longer you're in the game, the more responsibilities yeah. you mm-hmm. have, the more things that are pulling on you, and then you factor in children and some of the unique challenges mm-hmm. that we faced with our children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just... We get up every day and we do the best that we can and we try to have purpose in everything that we do and we make it work. And I think we both kind of knew what we were getting into, not completely until you're, but you, you kind of know the program that's in front of you when you sign up for it. Like, you know, in residency, you won't be home very much. You're working long hours, weird times. You'll, and you'll see a lot. You'll, you'll be responsible for a lot of hard situations. Um, and then, and then we knew Eric was on this ten-year clock. So you, you have a little bit of a roadmap, which mm-hmm. is nice mm-hmm. in some regards. And then for me, there was an end to it. I knew at the end of three years, that's I had to do three years and I was done, and mm-hmm. then I could get um, a job in the community. And then you, you had your your length of tenure, like how many years you would have to work towards tenure. So I think the timing, the time frame, also helps cope. Um, or helps you cope with that. But yeah, in our marriage, I don't, it wasn't, I don't think it was actually, our our marriage wasn't, I don't know, was too, wasn't too affected by those thick schedules. Yeah. I identified with what you said there. You know, if we're both very full, then there's a mutual understanding. It's mm-hmm. not lopsided or anything. Yes, it wasn't yeah. lopsided. So what about the decision to have children and then what that was like in those early years, balancing all this with young children? Well, and I th- I thought initially we thought, okay, we'll wait to have children until I'm done with my residency because of the the daunting schedule. Here in South Bend, the residency programs, there were a lot of residents that had, came in with children, and yeah. many of them. And so I think that rubbed off on me, especially. It was our first child. I was more than halfway through my program. I was at basically almost at the two-year mark. Sure. That, for me, having a baby in residency, I mean, you fall in love with your children, but I... I at that point I really didn't care to work anymore. I uh-huh. just I all I wanted to do was be with my baby. Yeah. And so that was very difficult for me to go back to work after we had her. Her name's Molly, is her oldest daughter. And so that was difficult for me. But then the nice thing was our schedule was crazy then. I would I, when I, w- I would wake her up early like at five a.m. feed her. I would give her to Eric. And I would leave for work like at 5.45. And right. he would have Eric till like, our babysitter came. So you got to spend a lot of time with Molly, with a right. two-month-old. Right. Um, and it became very... Pre-dawn hours. <laughs> Pre-dawn <laughs> hours. Uh, so we were able to make that work because we had someone come to our home, which worked with the weird schedules. But it, I think that's when working became difficult for me because then I ha- we had this other person who sure. I just wanted to really be with. Yeah. And, and who needed a lot. Who needed a lot. <laughs> right. And I couldn't because I, I also wanted to finish out my program. I yeah. knew I needed to finish my residency. Sure. You can't practice if you don't finish your residency. Sure. So, um, yeah. You know, and another, another great aspect of uh, the broader Notre Dame community, uh, my department in particular, is that it's very family-friendly. Yes. There's a lot of folks with – a lot of children. It's a normal part of life. Folks are very understanding of the demands that that places on parents and the importance that that takes in an individual's life. And so I think this has been a great environment. The Notre Dame community and the South Bend community more broadly has been a great environment in which to raise children. It's been a very understanding environment. There's other folks that are going through it with you 
Yeah. That's true. And actually, the year we had Molly, I think there were four other babies born in the econ department. Huh. So, yes, there were, people are taking all sorts of leaves and, and making allowances. Uh, you so, know, and a neat thing, in our department, there are four children of economists at Notre Dame who are in the second grade class at St. Joe Grade School. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's got to be some kind of record. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, so it's a very normal part of life around here. Sure, sure. That's great. Now, you had Molly, and then mm-hmm. other children came along, and there were some challenges yes. with that. So That's let's when in. our life got hard. <laughs> yeah, so let's, uh, let's, let's dive into that. Yeah. So we, um, we had, I was pregnant with our second child when I graduated from my residency program. And so I worked for a couple of months as a, at an outpatient, like private practice office. And then we had our son on Halloween in 2012. And then he was very much different from Molly. He was very mm-hmm. small. Mm-hmm. He didn't cry. He didn't cough. He didn't sneeze. But we just attribute that to, oh, wow, he's an angel. This is amazing. He's right. not fussy. Very easy baby, right? Yeah. Right. But he ended up being, it ended up being too easy. Um, he ended up being, he was very sick and we didn't know it. Yeah. Um, and at the age of three weeks, so, um, and this was actually the day after Notre the Dame. The day after the Southern Cal game in 2012. So we were down at... Jill's parents' house in Carmel, Indiana, and this was the first of the two undefeated seasons under right. the current head coach, and we had this game out at Southern Cal the Saturday after Thanksgiving that we needed to win to be number one in the then BCS rankings and go on to the national title, and I had made the crazy decision a couple days before, along with some colleagues, to go ahead and buy tickets wow. to the BCS national championship <laughs> game. Bold. I'm rolling my eyes. And it, <laughs> if for, for not a small sum of money down in Miami and so there was a lot riding on this game and so I remember watching that game in the basement at your parents house and being very excited and being on the phone with friends and colleagues afterwards and it was a great moment of celebration and then the next day uh, was a relatively nice day as I recall it and mm-hmm. we were going to drive back to South Bend we were in our minivan and we left a little later than we had anticipated leaving and Somewhere about two-thirds through the trip, Jill reached back, and our son, uh, Robert, we called him Bobby after his grandfather, Jill's dad, didn't seem to be breathing, and so we pulled over on the side of the road, probably 20 miles south of South Bend, Mm. and um, had a pretty horrific scene trying Mm. to figure out what was going on and calling 911 and eventually ending up in the hospital Mm. where, you know, he was resuscitated at some level and breathing through uh, with assistance from intubation, et cetera. Uh-huh. We, made it to, um, we made it to Memorial Hospital that Sunday night, and he lived through the week mm-hmm. and uh, ended up dying on Friday, uh, I believe it was November 30th, mm-hmm. 2012. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that was a super trying week, yeah. um, but it was also a time of great grace where we saw great involvement and participation from the broader community at Notre Dame. I was had become very close friends with Father Mike Kep in CSC, who actually just died six weeks ago, and uh, he was at the hospital. He came to the hospital on Sunday night and baptized our son mm-hmm. in the emergency room, wow. um, and he was there with us every morning. He said Mass in our room for us. Mm-hmm. There was a constant flow of visitors from the department, from the broader university community. Uh, It it was, at some level, Notre Dame at its very best Hmm. uh, in the darkest times. And so it was uh, a a very trying time, but also a 
a time of great love and a time of great grace. Yeah. Um, well, and Jill, you know, for you, obviously, that's every parent's worst nightmare mm-hmm. to lose a child. But I would think it would be compounded for you in the fact that your background is in medicine. And, mm-hmm. you know, what what's going on here that, that that sort of helplessness we feel sometimes when medicine can't answer all the questions that are there. And sometimes we have to go through those those very hard moments. So can you speak to that at all? Right. Yeah, you wish that there would have been, you know, he, you wish there could have been some sort of newborn screen, some sort of testing. Someone would have said, yeah, this kid's too small. Mm-hmm. Why is he so small? Um, and not chalk it up to, oh, that's just a different variation in your family. Um, so, yeah, I, I have been disappointed by the medical field. They certainly have given us some miracles, but there's certainly been lots of disappointments. And, you know, one of them is I realize that, People are people, and right. so and the medical field is so overwhelmed with patients, and there aren't enough providers. There's not enough time, and so and you also try to normalize things. Sure. Oh, and then uh, just and then I was a new mom again, and I, we had Molly was only like 19 months old. So they're like a year and a half apart. So then I remember thinking, wow, we had these kids way too close together. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, it's hard. You're just you're all you're concentrating on is the feedings and sure. sleeping and not sleeping. I just remember being so tired. So it doesn't give you as much time to investigate. So um, yeah, it was it was one of those things. Looking back, yes, there clearly was something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. But we figured this out too late. So, yes, and you, gosh, at the time you hope for like a major, a major miracle because there are people that get these miracles, and we certainly prayed for those miracles, and the miracle didn't come here. So that 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 was a hard thing to accept. That if if God if His will was that our son would live, He would have. Right. But He did it, so it wasn't the will. So. That's that's very difficult. Not even so much the medical field. It's more of like, why couldn't our son have been saved? Yeah. Why was he sick in the first place? And one of my sisters, actually my sister who has the chronic disease who I was talking about earlier, she, I think she explained it best. She said sin is everywhere. It's even in our genetics. Our genetics aren't perfect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she goes, you know, God could have made, she has a heart uh, issue. She goes, God could have made my heart perfect Mm -hmm. but it's not and I don't know why but that's the way I was made so our our genetics aren't perfect so I guess that's the that's one of the things I've kind of hung my hat on as far as we have we are our genes aren't perfect we Eric and I both have a a gene that is not right and Bobby got both of those Mm -hmm. copies and so therefore he had a disease Mm -hmm. and and then he died from it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the, and yeah, and, and then I I do get a little frustrated with the lack of speed in medicine. That I think the minds are there, the ideas are there, mm-hmm. and sometimes you wish you could just turn it up, like just let's go. Why does everything right. take so long? Right, right. Um, so yeah, that's that is frustrating. So yeah, that was that was hard. That was it's. Uh, and I remember having this idea in residency. I took care of this little girl with a pretty uh, severe disease of some sort. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I'm on this side of it. Yeah. And I'm not the one dealing with this disease. I remember thinking this. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, disease can affect anybody. Right. It doesn't matter that you have a degree, that you're in the in club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that you, there's no in club. Anybody. Uh-huh. Right. Anywhere can be affected by horrifying, horrifying disease. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's... Uh, 
it's worth pointing out, I guess, a couple of things. We didn't know what the disease was. That's true. No, we didn't know at the time. We did not know at the time. Uh, It was classified as SIDS death, Mm -hmm. sudden infant death syndrome. Uh We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know any of this. We knew that something didn't look right, but we didn't know any of that. You know, and the other thing is that, you know, timing is weird. Like, thing, th- life was very good. Right I remember then. sitting there. I had gotten my job with my offer to work at this physician's group, and it was part-time. And I remember calling my dad and saying, Dad, I don't think my life can get any better than this. Hmm. I said, I'm married to someone I love. We have we had this really cute home. We had I had my daughter Molly. I had this job coming. I'm pregnant my second baby. Yeah. I'm like, this I just can't get better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was... You know, and things were going well professionally. I was mm-hmm. having success with my research and teaching. As I mentioned, the football team was just gone 12-0. and 0. Right. It just seemed yeah. like it, it, was, yeah. it was hard to imagine. Things seem really yeah. good, and that's that, you know, and then, yeah. and then you, get a, you get a curveball. And there's a lot of fallout from that because most people don't go into attempting to become pregnant and having a pregnancy to only have a child for three weeks. Right. So you go through all this time and you're bonding with this child and you have these thoughts of the future with that child and you don't get that. Right. So it's very difficult when they say that, you know, this child is God's, not yours first. It really was, he was God's. We didn't, we don't get to raise him. So I think that's a, there's a lot of grief associated with our son, Bobby. Sure. One of the things that we don't, you don't get to raise him. You don't get to know them. You don't get to, what are their likes and dislikes? What kind of person would he have yeah, been? Yeah. Um, bad or good? You know, I'm right. sure he would have annoyed us <laughs> like our other children. You know, he would have been. There would have been frustrations, but you just don't get any of that. They are. They're all of a sudden they're gone, and that's very difficult. To even still, still he would be six, and mm-hmm. it's very difficult. As like now he would be in kindergarten. Sure, what kind yeah. Of kindergarten would he have been? Do you know I'd the, love yeah, to know. You know the times. You, you know, know the so, times. Yeah, Eric, you mentioned a little bit the moments of grace. I mean this. It seems like it was such a time to wrestle with your faith and wrestle with God. Can you speak more about how you made sense of this, if at all, through the lens of your faith? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know that you ever do make sense of it. And mm-hmm. I don't know that, you know, part of our faith is... <laughs> faith implies that there's always some doubt. There's always some lack of understanding. Sure. We don't we don't call it certainty. We call it faith. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you hear people say things like, oh, things happen for a reason. This is God's will. And I remember I mentioned Father Happen. He said, God did not want your son to die. Mm-hmm. And that was that was reassuring to me. A mm-hmm. lot of folks say, well, things happen for a reason and everything's going to be okay. And ultimate, Eternally, Ultimately, yes. <laughs> our faith tells right. us that everything is yeah. going to be okay. But I think that another thing that comes from our faith is that we're not... You know, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. We're not promised that things are going to be great. Mm-hmm. We're given crosses, and you don't want the crosses, but you gotta you gotta bear them. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's what we did. And I think the fact that we had a strong faith, that we had a daughter that we had to raise and take care of, helped us. You never get over it, sure. uh, but helped us march through that dark time in our life and try to, to the best that we can, turn it into something positive, try to use that to make a difference. I remember distinctly his funeral was on Monday, and I was teaching Tuesday, Thursday, and Tuesday was the last class of the semester. And I had not been in class the week before, obviously. Some of my colleagues filled in. And 
they thought it was crazy and I insisted I had to be in the classroom that Tuesday after the funeral. And many of my students actually came to the funeral, which was at the Basilica. And mm-hmm. I thought it was important to speak to them about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, God didn't want my son to die. I didn't want my son to die, but he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to make the best of this. And I've got to say something to my students about death, life, the, the importance of faith, the importance of having purpose, and the importance of carrying on. And it was very hard, but I did that. Yeah, that's amazing, even in the, the proximity to this moment, to be able to mm-hmm. articulate that for your students. So you both mentioned that you didn't know what Bobby mm-hmm. had, what it was called, right. but you came to know about that. So how did that happen? Um, so then we went on, we wanted more children. So we went on, um, we became pregnant with our daughter, Catherine, within the next couple of months. And my pregnancy was actually very similar to Bobby's, which was mm. worrisome. Sure. Because um, I could not gain weight. And I guess we should have mentioned, with, I guess with Molly, it was healthy, normal. I gained the appropriate amount of weight. And she was a big baby. Uh, with Bobby, he's very small, and I could not gain weight with him either. So with Catherine, the same thing started, where her growth numbers were falling off, and I, I made eating my job. And I, as a pregnant woman, I could not, it was weird, I could not gain weight. Huh. As much as I, I felt like I was eating like a football player, and I couldn't do it. So we actually, to see, we still didn't know what was wrong, but we had an inkling that something is up with these two kids. So we got her... We induced early to see if we could thwart whatever process was going on. Mm. And we did get her out early enough so she actually, her growth hadn't stopped. And we were trying to say brain cells. I thought if she's not gaining weight on the inside, her brain's going to suffer, so let's get her out. So um, she had a relatively short NICU stay, no problems noted. But we did come home with an apnea monitor in case... Like her heart would stop or she would stop breathing, maybe we would be notified because that was the thought behind him. He somehow stopped breathing for some reason. Right. And a similar situation happened where uh, she was, we had been home a couple of weeks and I fed her, I laid her down and she made a choking noise and I looked at her and she was blue. Hmm. So we took her to the hospital and then that started. A couple of months worth of she ended up being transferred down to Indianapolis. A couple of months worth of investigation of why can this child not breathe? And she ended up requiring what he did, but it was a little bit more controlled with some uh, lots of ups and downs. But um, she ended up having to be intubated and breathe. Uh, we had to breathe artificially for her. Yeah. And then we did find a diagnosis a couple of months into it that gave us the disease name. And then looking back. We just knew with certainty that that's what he had to have. Sure. Given that they have the same genetics and the pregnancies were the same, the symptoms were the same. So then we found out, yeah, we found out then through Catherine, and our daughter's name is Catherine, um, found out through her what her brother had. Mm-hmm. And that's called? It's called, it's a long name, SMARD is the um, abbreviation acronym. It's Spinal Muscular Atrophy respiratory distress okay smart and that it's a one of it's a rare disease it's an orphan disease there might be 100 120 people living living in the world with it there's probably a lot more that have not been diagnosed officially like my son and other children who have died from SIDS sure what was known as SIDS it's a neuromuscular disease that is genetically passed on so if both parents have to pass on um, a defective copy Mm -hmm. and then what that happens what happens is that the, the nerves coming off the spinal cord don't develop properly. 
they can't carry a signal from basically from the brain down to that foot, that hand, right. your lungs. So the first nerve that's affected is the one that helps an infant breathe. Okay. So that's why he stopped breathing. That's why Catherine had a hard time breathing when I fed her. Yeah. And then what that it, what it leads to is almost like complete paralysis by the time you're one, one and a half. I see. So these children require like mechanical ventilation. So they have a trach, a ventilator that breathes for them. Um, usually you have problems you can't eat by mouth, so you have a G-tube. And you're not able to stand, walk, crawl, sit up. So the children will need um, wheelchairs, mm-hmm. um, toilet seats, standers to stand up. And the current state of affairs is that now Catherine is five and a half. She's long, and her little muscles can't roll her from side to side. So we have to roll her, reposition her, everything. So it's it's a pretty severe disease. When we try to think positively about it, there we live in a world that has a lot of technology. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps her alive through the through the different machines. And there's a lot that can make her life so much more comfortable, like these wheelchairs and like the the stander and this the things like that. So. But yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very severe disease. But we're able, but she's able to live with it, right? And live a pretty a pretty good life, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. all things considered. Mm-hmm. Eric, for you as a father, you'd already lived through the death of your son, and then you get the panic news that mm-hmm. you know Catherine's not breathing, and we're not mm-hmm. sure. What was that like for you from that moment through? the hospital in Indianapolis and the diagnosis what, what, what was going through your mind at that at that <laughs> time uh, it was extraordinarily trying I remember thinking like many of the physicians did that Jill was overreacting and having PTSD if you will sure. from an event that had happened less than a year earlier right I could admit to feeling cheated in some respects and selfishly so I was my career was going pretty well I even think that the night we took Catherine to the hospital, I was supposed to go to the University of Texas at Austin for a seminar a couple of days later, and I had to delay that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the specifics, but I mm-hmm. remember, I'll, I'll be honest, I remember in a very human moment of weakness feeling, this isn't fair to me. This is mm-hmm. interrupting my plans. Sure. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, our lives are not our own, and you know, I had to come to accept that and view it as, you know, Life's not about the cards you have. It's how you play the hand you're dealt. And, you know, I wasn't dealt the hand that I would have drawn up Mm -hmm. or that I would have desired. But I just convinced myself that what I had to do was play that hand the best that I could and try to make the most of it and try to, in any way, shape, or form that I could, use these experiences for good, if I could. And... Throughout this whole process, I I missed very little class. I taught throughout the whole process while Catherine was hospitalized in Indianapolis for four or five months. I would come here Tuesday morning and come back, go back to Indianapolis Mm -hmm. Thursday night to teach my classes. And I thought it was important to share that experience with my students. My students were very understanding, and in fact, many of them who have since become friends did things like take me to dinner on those nights that I was Mm -hmm. home alone and... And I spent a lot of time, I mentioned Father Heppen again, I spent a lot of time with him thinking through all of this. And and I think, I was thinking, you remind me of something we did. So in, in between Bobby and Catherine, I think we, like you said, we've never felt 
we probably never felt closer to God than we did during that time, hmm. which you wish it didn't have to be that sure, way. Sure, sure. Like, why should you have to lose a child to be close to God? It yeah. doesn't, that's what hard's hard to understand. But, like, we decided, Mary said, I think we should pray a decade of the rosary every day together. And you're like, well, decade, let's just do the whole thing. And I remember <laughs> saying, really? But then that was actually mm-hmm. very healing for us to spend that 15 minutes. We did it every night, mm-hmm. 15 minutes through my pregnancy. With Catherine. With, with pregnancy yeah. with Catherine yeah. um, to do that. So we, we did actually spend more time as a couple, and we prayed more together. Because I think you realize how much you need God yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when, when something, when you go through, like, losing a child. And I guess the other, to kind of go back, the other things I think that helped me, too, is I started, I feel like I could identify with Mary so mm-hmm. much more than I ever had. Like, I remember holding Bobby. He had died. So life support, everything was gone. I remember holding his little broken body because he was pretty floppy. You know, it, yeah, he didn't have any tone. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is how this is how Mary held Jesus once he, when he died. Yeah. And I remember just crying because I thought, oh, my gosh, that woman lost her son, too. Like, we both lost our sons. Mm-hmm. Then I said, well, she got him for 30 years. <laughs> you know, I only have him for three weeks, which, I don't know, then I laugh at the old boy. Why did I say that? But um, Comparing but, yourself to the Blessed yeah, Mother. Right the blessed mother. <laughs> she was luckier. Uh, but I, and I still have that image. And then I think when we went through Lent after Bobby, that was so painful because when because I think we could closely identify with, like, we were not crucified, but I, we could closely identify with his, the Holy Week. Yeah. I could, I could barely even watch, wasn't there a doc, there was some documentary you were watching on Holy Week, and his, his walking, bearing his cross, the thorns in his head, everyone yelling at him, and I, I, I almost couldn't watch it, because yeah. we, had, we, we had just been through that. Right. I mean, we had been through hell mm-hmm. on earth, and I just said, I can't watch this because it was almost like reliving that week mm-hmm. of Bobby in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I think that also kind of charged up our faith that week with Bobby because, like, it makes me realize I don't want to go to hell. Mm-hmm. If I go to hell, I can't see my son again. Mm-hmm. I think my son's drawing me to Jesus. Mm. So I just, I remember telling Eric, we cannot go there. Like, it, it became such a, like, a, a true feeling. A, like a real thing that hell is real mm-hmm. um, because it was very real that week or maybe that was our purgatory on earth yeah um, but I think those things are still stick with there's they're not as intense because now our life is much more put together than it was but even going back when Catherine's first in the hospital and was Eric's reaction to that at that time you almost just kind of want to push everything that happened the past year under the rug and just reestablish in your normal life. Like, mm-hmm. we did lose our son. We miss him. We love him. But okay, now we have the second girl. Let's, can, let's just, can we just go back to our normal life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was hard because that wasn't the answer. Right. We weren't going back to our normal right. life. Yeah, never. We never did. Yeah. And then when we got the news of, oh, she's going to have to trach. You will have this permanently. She will have a wheelchair. She will have therapists. You will have nursing. You will have to get a different insurance for her. You will have to outfit your home to fit a child with all this equipment. And then even when we brought her home, it was very, very difficult because we didn't have the nursing support we needed. We ended up having to change rooms with her because she had so much equipment. You thought, how much equipment could this one little six-month-old have? Right. So major, major changes. We couldn't leave our home with her, uh, going anywhere with her and all of her things was a major operation. So mm-hmm. I think all of those, it was a complete, complete change in our lifestyle mm-hmm. as far as just the ease of being able to like put your kids in their cars, just run the grocery store, go see grandma, go to this, do this. That was gone. 
So even my idea of oh, being a stay-at-home mom someday, maybe working part-time, maybe not, gone. Mm-hmm. As far as the how you think you're going to conduct yourself, and, and even Eric being able just to come to work, doing a couple of things after work, and then coming home and just playing with the kids and putting to bed, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so th- those are those things that we lost. We lost our child. We lost our our child that we thought was going to be healthy. We lost that health, and then you lose the idea of how your family is going to go with just these normal everyday little things that you you do kind of take for granted. That's all gone so that's having to process all of that and kind of live that out that's also yeah that this is not the way we envisioned our life would go yes it's a really interesting point that you make this uniting our sufferings our crosses to christ's cross Mm -hmm. seeing your suffering through the eyes of mary seeing what a gift of god the father to to give us his son jesus for this purpose Mm -hmm. sometimes it seems like that's the only way we can, not that we can make full sense of it, but we can make mm-hmm. any sense of it, mm-hmm. is to see the cross of Christ and then, you know, the promise of Easter mm-hmm. that's intrinsically connected to that. So have there been moments of grace that you have witnessed in your family, in your marriage, in just Catherine's existence that have been little whispers, if you will, mm-hmm. of Easter, of that Easter hope, even in the midst of great suffering? Well, and I, I think, I mean, I have said it, in some ways our life is easy because we know what our cross is. Hmm. It's, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. It's right, right. there. So I, and, and I told Eric, I said, we know what we need to do. We need to be serving God by serving Catherine. Mm-hmm. So in that way, and I think that's been a grace. Eric has touched on this before, but we have had so many people support us through prayers through, you know, rosaries, through masses, through visiting us, through, like, picking up our other kids because we can't get there by taking uh, the others so that we can get Catherine to the hospital on time, through just a lot of unsung heroes that we realize, like, wow, we are, God is helping us on this journey. And then there are some things that happened that, like, this past summer she had major surgery twice, and there were some things that happened where she made it through. It was actually a very difficult summer. And you think that's where these prayers are coming through. Like mm-hmm. she was she was saved. Or she got a better ventilator that all of a sudden helped her better. That all of a sudden everything was better. Like wow. Or she like she didn't say, she didn't speak for a long time and she was fourteen months and she said mama and she said it for like thirty minutes. And I remember thinking, this is the sweetest thing <laughs> I have ever heard. And really the she could still she can't say that many words, but she can still say mama. And what a what a gift! Yeah, um, and she has the most beautiful smile. Yeah, uh, we're very blessed that in spite of her great difficulties mentally, she's a hundred percent there, mm-hmm. and she's got a beautiful face, beautiful hair, and she's happy. And mm-hmm. you see the fact that she's happy in spite of all this, the the crosses that she has to bear, and that's a great inspiration to us. Uh, that mm-hmm. you know, these little things which seem like. Mm-hmm. They're so tough or not that tough. We can work through them, and it's a great, you know, in many respects, it's a great privilege to be afforded by our Lord the chance to serve in this way. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not what I would have chosen. Sure. I would change it if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but in many ways, it's a great privilege. You know, we're trying to make her life as normal as possible, the lives of our other children as normal as possible, and... We have our moments, of course, where we have doubts. We have our moments of stress. Mm -hmm. We have our moments where we wish we could get a little bit more sleep or have more time to ourselves. But we're we're making it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Catherine is such a special soul. I think a lot of people are drawn to her because she's such a cool little kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you, all that, all the equipment, everything goes away. And you're like, wow, this, she's just a neat kid. Like she has a personality. She has likes and she has dislikes. And she's really overcome so much. So that's kind of what's cool about kids with diseases. They, she doesn't know what mm-hmm. she, she can't do. Right. And she keeps trying. So like she taught herself how to drive a power wheelchair at the age of three. Mm-hmm. And she can drive this thing up and down hills. She can back up. So like the other day, she backed up into her room the whole way. It's kind of a long hallway. And she was smiling and she knew she did something cool. Yeah. I'm like, and she doesn't have a rear view mirror. And she <laughs> backed up. It's so she's able to not that you're loved because you can produce but it's just it's cool to see what she can do despite not be able to do so much mm-hmm. that she can for her she's getting enjoyment out of her life which is cool and i think every step along the way there's in various aspects of like her trying to figure out how to manage one of her medical problems or even like school, there's usually, there are so many obstacles along the way. Like mm-hmm. you hit so many roadblocks. There's no, 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 no. And then finally you piece it together where someone says yes or someone has an idea that works and you think, thank you, God. Like this past year it was finding a school for her to go to. Mm-hmm. We got lots of no's, lots of obstacles. And then we found a place that said we would love for her to come. Here come the prayers again. That's where they came through, and she's doing so well. Like we want, and when we say we wish we, if we could change it, we would. Like you want, you don't want your child to have to suffer this much. Like, sure, there's enough suffering in life, and she'll have to go through enough. So we love her to be able to run around and talk. And I wish I could sign up for soccer and all that stuff, but we can't. So what we do is we like we we try to make her life as normal as possible. So one of those things that's normal for a child to do is go to school. So she gets to go to school, yeah. and that brings us like great satisfaction mm-hmm. that we can help her develop her mind. We can give her things to pursue, and that will that will really help her. So yes, there have been a lot of graces that have come along come along the way that that really are like they they keep they keep you going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the topics of this podcast is holiness mm-hmm. and the pursuit of holiness, even in the midst of our crosses, in the midst of regular life or irregular situations. How have you seen each other grow in holiness from the time in the coffee shop when you met <laughs> to this this moment now? Yeah, I don't know. I've never seen a person more selfless and more devoted to her children than Jill. And she is... Catherine's biggest advocate and in spite of that is a great mom to our other two girls Molly and then we have a a three-year-old named Caroline Mm -hmm. um, that's healthy and Jill is tireless is giving of herself has sacrificed a great deal personally to try to make my career as normal as possible and and she has a great faith life she gets up in the morning and reads the Magnificat while she's walking on Mm -hmm. the treadmill and it's a much more so, much more visible outward signs of faith than I think when we met in that coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jill's much more emotional about it. Uh, she's got a great sense of spirituality, and she's a great inspiration to me and to others. I think I've, I've le- I think I've learned through all the reading of the Magnificat that you referenced that I need to offer up my our sacrifices. So I, I think I do that on a regular basis. I try when I'm having hard moments or just working hard mm-hmm. with Catherine or whatever it is. I try to offer those up so it means something 
and I actually learned that a little, you remind me of the little grace that comes along the way. I, I, I was, I was coming up for my sister's wedding. Uh, another sister of mine got married in St. Thomas. It was a cool, cool place. And actually there were two things that happened on that plane. The person in front of me who helped me with my bags, because you had to walk from the tarmac up, his name was Robert Anthony. And I go, oh my gosh, that's my son's name. Hmm. I go, thank you so much for helping me. And he goes, oh yeah, I go by Bobby. I go, oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> and then it was just wow. wonderful. I was like, I feel like my son's helping me. And then I sat next to a lady who started talking to me, and her son had has autism. And she said, she goes, you know what I do every time I have a hard moment with him? I pray he'll marry. She goes, our lady gets me through everything. And I go, that is such a wonderful idea. So I wish I could thank that woman. But that's what I've done. I think it helps me. It centers you, and you stop thinking about the pain I'm experiencing. Or not pain, but discomfort or like being pulled as I don't want to do this right now it's not on my schedule it's not on my plan or why am I spending more time on this or whatever so I think it centers me and realizes on on to God on to Mary Mm -hmm. and ask for help ask for the grace to do what I need to do for you right now because you constantly with Catherine get pulled away from yourself onto her mm-hmm. now i'm saying this because we also she's also a five-year-old okay? right right <laughs> so if you separate her from her medical problems she's still when i asked when i told her yesterday we had to turn off the tiger because she she watched 30 minutes she didn't like that mm-hmm. so she started crying shaking her head no so we ha- we also have to balance it with like normal parenting right which is kind of funny <laughs> yeah so i yeah i feel like it holiness i guess has become very concrete for us because we have something concrete tasks that mm-hmm. we're called to do on a daily basis is manage Catherine's care and and help her be the healthiest she can be and, and serve her because she is her disease is such that like she's completely paralyzed she's total care so yeah. everything you can think of doing we do for her like right. we move her arms we move her legs we sure. roll her torso we sit her up we brush her teeth we, we feed her, her. Yeah. so everything so and I think Eric you probably you've grown holiness that way too where you're con- you have to get pulled away from what is on your agenda Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you've had to i think like with work-life balance you've had to pull away from some of your you know your immediate work goals i want to finish this paper i want to finish this referee report and focus on the task at hand with Catherine. yeah so i think you it's it's these little sacrifices that you do it that i think are our way of being holy is you constantly say no to yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Thank you. This is a, just a, a tremendous story and, and one that's ongoing. It seems you've learned the lessons that we all learn in life, mm-hmm. but you've learned them in a much more acute fashion yes. for what, for what you've, you've had to go through. But you've used that as a way to pass those lessons along or teach others mm-hmm. you know, through your witness, through your marriage, through your family. So, mm-hmm. And I hope the same is true as we, as we share your story with our mm-hmm. Faith Indie audience. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you us. so much, Dan. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness. For more episodes, visit faith.nd.edu. There you can also subscribe to our daily gospel reflection. We thank you for listening, and we hope to have you with us next time. Mm-hmm.